This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 26, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Many conservatives have claimed that EPA rules now in the pipeline for coal-fired power plants are just further evidence of an Obama-led war on coal. The truth is more complicated, according to Peter Van Doren, editor of Regulation Magazine. He argues that most of the EPA's power is, well, right there in the statute. But lawmakers are loath to change it. We have new rules in process for how new coal-fired power plants, should one be built, are to operate. And this is cited as evidence, again, as an Obama-led war on coal. And how, how credible is that claim? Well, uh, in, in regards to CO2 emissions, um, what I find interesting is, is the EPA chose to initially, at least, regulate only new coal-fired power plants. And since there aren't any being built and aren't any being proposed because of the low price of natural gas, you could argue that the EPA has declared a war on coal if you really hate the EPA. Or you could argue, boy, are they clever and they've, the Obama administration has managed to sort of comply with the Mass versus EPA Supreme Court decision, which mandated that the EPA not dodge greenhouse gas regulation as it had been. Um, and by, by saying that they're going to regulate only new coal-fired power plants, um, since there aren't going to be any because of the low price of natural gas, this in effect means – in fact, um, when I read the uh, cost-benefit analysis in, in the EPA document of the proposed rule, the EPA even admitted that this proposal had no cost because there weren't going to be any new coal-fired power plants built. This is – um, depending on your point of view, either a clever dodge uh, on the part of the EPA or a draconian rule. Because indeed, given current technology, um, no new coal-fired power plants uh, could sequester carbon and meet the new rule. So in fact, if coal-fired power plants were economical on other reasons, i.e. the cost of coal was very low and the cost of natural gas or another fuel nuclear was very high, then, in fact, this regulation would bite and it would basically ban uh, any new fired, uh, new coal-fired power plant. So in uh, a different-looking market for energy, this would be a draconian rule. But given how the market has progressed, it would be like, I don't know, a tight restriction on buggy whips or ice delivery in your home. Correct. Correct. It's, it's a draconian rule depending on the, the period in history. Um, but you're right. We're not buying ice or buying buggy whips at this point. The, the claim that uh, this is a continuation of an Obama-led war on coal, again, how credible is that? Well, the, the, then we could switch from greenhouse gas regulation to, to conventional pollutant regulation. And a lot of rules seem to be coming down the pike um, under the Obama administration regarding um, so-called air toxics, i.e. mercury emissions from uh, coal-fired power plants. There's the possibility of a coal ash rule um, regulating the, um, the uh, wastes from coal-fired power productions and how they're stored um, and deposited in, in waste dumps. Um, there's also something called the cross-air interstate rule regarding uh, the transmission of coal-fired pollution conventional pollution from Midwest power plants towards eastern states. And all of those rules are seem to be coming up now, and uh, critics of the Obama administration say this is evidence of a war on coal uh, generated by the Obama administration.
So those simple facts, in fact, seem supportive. Um, but there's a very complicated, convoluted history behind conventional pollution regulation. And that a lot of this starts actually in the 70s, believe it or not, in, uh, with the underlying statute, the Clean Air Act of, uh, of 1970, and then the amendments of 1977, and what they do and do not mandate. And then there's been court suits and lawsuits and court settlements, and all of it works its way to the present, and we're basically working all that out over uh, more than a generation of, of academics and politicians. So the, the Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, amended in 1977, and then amended again in 1990? Correct. And so we've had, we're fighting over a statute that by and large has not changed very much. That's correct. And, and it's, um, it, it has, because it was done by politicians and by lawyers rather than by economists. I mean, to an economist, the, the, uh, there ought to be one price for the emission of one pollutant in, in any given setting, depending on what health effects it does or does not have. But depending on the kind of source you have, i.e. mobile versus stationary and then old versus new, you have what economists would describe as many arbitrage opportunities. Um, for example, Cleaning up nitrogen oxide from stationary sources is, in fact, much cheaper than cleaning it up from mobile sources. But, in fact, we have much more stringent restrictions on mobile source emission, i.e. cars and trucks for, for NOx, than we do on stationary. And so the, the, the thing you learn in, you know, freshman micro is that the law of one price, that, that the price of an emission in a given a, uh, ambient air quality area ought to be constant across entities because we ought to face the same price. That's violated over and over again because of the way the, the Clean Air Act is written. The way it's written, not, not purely through political opportunism on the part of politicians. No, and, and again, um, people, the, certainly the Cato Institute and its followers um, care about courts not making up law. And, and what's interesting is um, a lot of the rules, the conventional rules coming down the pike are the result of court decisions that argue the EPA was trying to be more market-oriented than, in fact, the statute allows it to be. So the Clean Air Interstate Rule, which would have set up a trading regime across states for nitrogen oxide emissions between the Midwest and the East Coast, the, um, the courts have ruled that, in fact, the EPA didn't have the discretion to set up a trading regime. Instead, it had to use conventional command and control regulation that punished states that emitted, even if those states' um, emissions were very high cost to reduce rather than other states. Uh, so the, the problem with the Clean Air Act uh, statute in most economists' eyes is that it says, dear EPA, go discover any health harms that you can think of and find some science that underlies those health harms and then regulate the heck out of those health harms and don't worry about cost. That's what the statute says. So when the courts confront the EPA trying to be economically friendly, as if you will, um, the courts say the EPA can't do that. So you end up with the accidental outcome, which is pretty draconian regulations coming down during a fairly left-of-center presidency. But it's but it's actually the problem is the Congress and the way the statute was written, way under Presidents, uh, you know, Nixon and Carter, 
not not the result of any congressional decisions that that have recently been made. Now, uh, one of the chief criticisms I've heard uh, about this new consumer protection agency created by Dodd-Frank is that the big problem with it is that it only has one thing to do and that there's no uh, there's no balancing uh, that it has to do of interests and this seems like That's the same analogous. case with the EPA. It's even the the consumer uh, uh, protection board under uh, uh, Dodd-Frank it's even uh, more difficult than the EPA for the following reason the congress has to a certain extent well one way in which the um, EPA regulates conventional pollution is it mandates that states set up state ambient control plans, which are sent to the EPA. So, so the federal government only regulates new sources. Incumbent sources under the Clean Air Act statutes are regulated by the states. The states that, are, that are set up ambient air control quality plans, which are submitted to the EPA for approval, well, every year in the EPA... Um, appropriations amendment, there's lots of, of riders attached to that appropriations amendment, which state that no, that the EPA shall not approve any state uh, air control plan which has parking surcharges, any kind of thing that constituents don't seem to like, even though they claim to like clean air, i.e. a cheap tax or a cheap price on some behavior that appears to cause pollution, no straight control plan can, can have those. So even though there's this draconian statute that I described, the, the Congress does have some wiggle room by attaching riders to the annual appropriations bill that hem in the EPA if there's cross-party consensus regarding that. And as, as we know, when politicians are allowed to attach temporary measures uh, to statutes and funding, that uh, that expires, and then of course, people who are interested in maintaining that status, the game ensues, and the game ensues. Uh, politicians then are able to to profit from Ex that in some way. Correct. Now, the worrisome thing about the Consumer Protection Board in the uh, under Dodd Frank is that its, and this is why the Republicans fought so hard against it, is that its budget is not going to be appropriated. It, is, it has a dedicated source of revenue from the Fed, and the Fed gets its money from all the things the Fed does, check clearing, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, this, so the checks on the EPA are stronger, effectively. If, even, sure. Yeah. So uh, it, with regard to uh, the statute, uh, are there any other reasons why it simply hasn't been changed? It, if you study environmental and energy statutes, it's remarkable how how uh, how infrequently they are actually opened up and readdressed. Um, Congress finds that extremely unpleasant. Uh, so, for I have an example from energy, which is regarding natural gas price regulation. And uh, again, if you think of Mass versus EPA on the environment side as a kind of boneheaded Supreme Court decision, in natural gas, uh, in 1938, Congress passed the Natural Gas Regulation Act. Congress thought it only meant pipelines. It didn't want regulation of natural gases prices at the wellhead. In 1947, the Supreme Court hinted that the statute as written mandated natural gas price regulation at the wellhead. 1954, they affirmed that. Congress actually never got around to deregulating natural gas prices 
until Jimmy Carter in 1978. So, it, so if you think this Mass versus EPA decision is a nightmare and you want the Congress to address it by rewriting the Clean Air Act and stating that CO2 is not a pollutant, um, I do not perceive that happening in my lifetime. Um, it's in, the, in my remaining lifetime. It's going to be 30 or 40 years before you, the forces of history and accident get the Congress and the president to be on the same page about that. And so we might be stuck with this horribly written Clean Air Act, the inability to amendment and Mass versus EPA mandating that CO2 be regulated for uh, the foreseeable future. Peter Van Doren is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and editor of Regulation Magazine. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.